When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. KYA is sponsored by Book Riot's slate of rad newsletters. Did you know Book Riot has over 25 newsletters covering every genre as well as book news and deals? Sign up for book deals to get notified, also notified, about the best book sales of the day, handpicked by our editorial staff. There's Today in Books, our daily newsletter summing up the most interesting headlines from the book world every day. And don't miss our newest newsletter, Our Queerest Shelves, which will deliver LGBTQ plus news and recommendations straight to your inbox. We've also got newsletters for horror fans, romance readers, YA lovers, which if you're listening, probably your first pick, <laughs> mystery thriller aficionados, and more. Just go to bookriot.com slash newsletters to sign up for the newsletters that are most interesting to you. That's bookriot.com slash newsletters. Welcome to Hey YA. From great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a Book Riot podcast hosted by me, Sarah Hannah Gomez, and Kelly Jensen. We are recording on Monday, March 15th, 2021. Happy Ides of March, which I don't really know what they are, but maybe you can tell me because you put that in the notes. <laughs> um, I believe it is the day something happened to Julius Caesar. I was going to um, say, like, I feel like it's Rome something because uh, you're supposed to beware, right? Yeah, beware the Ides of March. I think that's when he was, yeah, that's when he was assassinated um by a group of senators i was like i was gonna say that and then i was like wait a minute is that right yes it is trust your instinct kelly yes that's exactly what it is so you know watch your backs all that stuff feels appropriate for a ya podcast (laughs) you know (laughs) like you never know what's gonna happen but i always i always think of march 15th as sort of like we're only a few days out from spring here in the northern hemisphere and march 15th always feels so hopeful to me in the sense that like we're halfway through what can be a challenging month in terms of just being long and if you're in a place where the weather is cold and gross like it's starting to change a little bit I don't know something about the 15th just feels good to me in March (laughs) yeah I mean I I was I was thinking because yesterday was, you know, pie day, like P.I., but then everyone plays with, Mm -hmm. you know, pie that you eat. And I'm like, I would love that, except I'm gluten free and it's hard (laughs) to find pie. Um, But yeah, I had like a weird dream last night about, you know, someone coming over and eating pie, but it was someone who is deceased. So I was like extra happy to see her. Oh, but like she was like very like distant. And yeah, then I woke up and was like, oh, that was. That was hella weird. But you're right. March is wild. Like a week and a half ago, it was 80 degrees in Tucson. And then three-ish days ago, it snowed. We have been all over the place. Like we were so cold for a really long stretch there. And I'm talking like negative high temperatures for a long time. And then it 
shifted to like 40s and 50s, which was great and also a little above average, um, which I, I'm not going to complain about. But it was like I would be happy with 30 and sunny like that would be perfect because that's about <laughs> right. Um, and we got better than that. But today it's kind of gross out. It looks like it's going to snow. But it's one of those things like you look at the extended forecast and uh, today's the only day in the 30s without sun. Everything is 40s, 50s, even 60s with sun. So it's like, OK, maybe we'll get an inch or two of snow, but it's not going to stick around. And I don't know. There's something like hopeful in that. That's true. That that follows for you because Groundhog Day is your favorite holiday. So I feel like it's, you know, it's fitting that the eyes of March would be like another favorite holiday of yours. I mean, normal people love, you know, big family celebratory events. Meanwhile, I'm like, Groundhog Day, we're going to worship a rodent. And eyes of March, you know, Julius Caesar was assassinated by senators. Like, these are great days. I mean, my favorite holiday is Passover, which is, you know, just here's a bunch of depressing stuff that happened. Or, you know, as the Jews like to say, they tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. But it's food, right? It is. And I don't know, I because I'm also not a big holiday person. But mm-hmm. yeah, Passover is coming up and I like the the ritual of it all. You know, mm-hmm. like my family doesn't do a particularly long version um, the way you might in an you know, orthodox or conservative setting. But we read the story and, you know, the youngest kids ask the four questions and <laughs> we eat the food and we dip, you know, not once but twice and we recline and we don't really recline, recline while we're eating. But yeah, it's I don't know. It's like just enough ritual without being like hella religious and mm-hmm. the food is delicious except for gefilte fish and <laughs> gefilte fish is disgusting but, yeah i think i think it's my favorite holiday it's it's a reading holiday it's a like kids learning holiday it's yeah so it's very multi-generational in the sense that you know it's about history from a bazillion years ago but also about kids learning and adults teaching and yeah kids going on a treasure hunt essentially and yeah it's good times i love that i love that so much i i really like hearing like what holidays people like and why it is because there's always an interesting story behind it um you know people always ask me like why groundhog day and i explain it to them and then they're like oh okay that makes perfect sense you know um and it makes perfect sense why you would like passover so much and i just i find it find it fascinating so yeah like most adults like Purim which was a couple weeks ago and I just find Purim very cringe like everyone (laughs) jokes because it's like adults get to get drunk and kids get to dress up like it's great for everyone but there's so there's a thing called the Purim spiel which is where we get spiel from because everybody Mm -hmm. knows more you know Yiddish than they think they do (laughs) but it's always like so campy and cringe and I I can't like oh I can't do it. Like, I'm happy for other people to enjoy it, but it's, like, too Mm -hmm. much cringe for me. So then we get to Passover, and I'm like, hooray. It's just enough fun while also being, like, brainy. (laughs) (laughs) And there's lots of wine, so, you know. Do you want to hit our first sponsor, and then we'll dive into today's topic? I'm really excited about today's topics. Me too. I like both of them. So, yes. Our first sponsor is TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new YA or other books to read but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. 
Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for, and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie too. And it's also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. So I love how much broader historical fiction has gotten in YA. It used to be... and, and maybe it wasn't always this way, but in my head, it was always Anne Rinaldi type stories. I was just going to say that. <laughs> all which, Anne Rinaldi or Dear America. <laughs> and that's yes. Yeah. Which, you know, for a lot of readers like that was sufficient. But for me, I always found that super boring. And I want to say in the last decade or so, particularly the last half decade, we have seen so much growth in historical fiction in YA, and particularly with female leads and female leads of color. And we, I, I know we're both going to talk about Stacey Lee as one of our, our favorites in that category, but like just how expansive this category is has grown, it surprises me. And it surprises me because as somebody who didn't grow up reading much historical fiction, except for like the American Girl books... I'm gravitating toward them, and I never really did before. And now it's like two of my favorite books so far this year have been historical fiction. Yeah, I same thing. I was like Anne Rinaldi, and that always gave me a headache. Um, like I think it was kind of like they would push it as a like you've grown out of Dear America, read Anne Rinaldi. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think for many reasons I was not interested. And yeah, I tell people, but especially my students a lot, like I've learned far more about history from reading children's and YA historical fiction than I ever did from my history teachers. I I had amazing math teachers, like I would say my math and language teachers that I had in, you know, middle and high school were phenomenal. Like I thank you to those teachers. But my history classes so (laughs) since then it's yeah, like my understanding of history is audiobooks for adults about you know micro histories or whatever and then children's and YA historical fiction and you're right in the last five to ten years especially like the things I have learned the lies I have uncovered too like that's my latest (laughs) shtick in Mm -hmm. research too is like find the lies it's It's interesting you brought up your history teachers because I was just going through my head and I'm like you know I, I had pretty good history teachers in high school uh, but they're all white men. So that certainly impacted like what the history was, as did just simply being in a you know public high school in America. <laughs> but thinking about like my favorite history classes were ones I took in college and they were by a much more diverse array of teachers and professors and um, really sort of pushed looking into these smaller, I don't want to say smaller, but like more nuanced pieces of history where you do exactly what you had said, you know, like find the lie or find like the the real narrative here and not the one that's been passed off in textbooks as the easy story. And I really feel like we're seeing that in YA. And for any reader who's, you know, been put off by historical fiction, like I really, really encourage you to pick some of these up because it's such a 
they can be challenging. They can be, you know, like they can push you past some of the thinking you've had, but they're so immersive and fascinating. And when I finish one, it's like, all I want to do is read more and then also connect them to one another. Like how the threads between one author's story set in this time period connects with the threads of this other author's story set in this time period. I, I just find that so fascinating. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I had like kind of bad luck with history teachers. And also, this is my problem with a lot of science education, too, is it's I learn better if I go from micro. Well, no, that's not mm-hmm. true. In science, I learn better macro first and then micro. But history, I think I learn better micro and then macro. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a lot of history classes are, I mean, my, you know, AP US teacher was like, memorize all of this stuff. Here's an outline. And then next week, you can forget it all and memorize this new stuff. And mm-hmm. then I remember in eighth grade, like my most memorable thing from eighth grade is not like learning a cool thing about US history. It's when we had a quiz that was match the gun to the war it would Ooh. have been used in. Like that was it was like five questions like what was a musket for and what was a rifle for? And I was like, this is not interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Versus historical fiction where it might be this small thing. But then you're like, wow, like I've learned a lot about fashion in this book. Right. And that connects to like what were women doing and what were men wanting them to do? You know, and then it kind Mm -hmm. of builds on that. But you start with like a person you care about (laughs) and then like under and then like learning about their context. and. yeah, exactly. like, what is the point of outlines and then memorizing these words and then forgetting them in favor of mm-hmm. these other? Like, I don't care about guns, but right. I really care about this person, you know. Right, or this uh, piece of legislation that sort of was never talked about and yet impacted an entire group of people. Exactly. You know, um, let's let's dive into the book. So all of these, it's, it's Women's History Month. All of these are going to feature female-identifying leads. And um, they're kind of frontlist and backlist. I think it's a really nice mix of titles that we've pulled together. Yes. So um, I'll go first if that's cool, because this book, just like, ugh, I love it so much. Absolutely. And this came out a couple weeks ago, and it's Mazzy by Melanie Crowder. I've talked about Melanie Crowder before. She writes some of my favorite historical YA. And I am so surprised to have seen so little talk about this one that just came out. It was outstanding. So it's set in the 1950s, and it follows 18-year-old Mazzy, who is in this long-term relationship with Jesse in their small Nebraska town. But all Mazzy wants is to be in the, the world of theater. She's super talented. She's done a lot in town and and like regionally, but... The thing is, she's in this small town. It's the 1950s. People don't tend to leave, uh, aside from those who went to war and they come back. So for her to have such huge dreams while also having this like reality of what her Nebraska town is, is a lot for those who love her to handle. Like They don't want her to go, even though they kind of want her to pursue her dreams as well. It's this weird, weird tension. Uh, but her grandmother is actually the one who is very, very invested on her pursuing her dreams and she gives Mazzy a sum of money that will help her survive for a few weeks in New York City and a pair of train tickets. So Mazzy stays at this boarding house for 
women who are trying to break into theater in New York City. And she has six weeks to prove herself because that's what her budget will allow her to have. And when it starts to draw near the time of those six weeks, she hasn't had a lot of success. Um, She gets the chance of a lifetime, but it's not what she anticipated it. She'll be part of what is called an industrial theater group, which is something I'd never heard of before. And they're going to tour the Midwest to help this tractor company get their employees excited about setting. So she's got a role as an understudy and her responsibility is to memorize all the female roles just in case something were to happen to any of the characters. And she doesn't get a lot of time to decide if she's going to take the role, but she takes it. Uh, Despite the fact that she's a little... She's feeling like she's stepping backward because she's taking this theater job that's not like under the bright lights of the city and she'll be going back to the Midwest. But pretty much immediately there's an incident and one of the lead actresses can't perform. So Mazzy is now the uh, person who is starring in the show. And she and the crew are in Nebraska. There's an accident where that causes them to sort of stay in Nebraska for an extra week. And she uses this as a time to reconnect with her family and the boyfriend and everybody there. And it's just this really fascinating look at pursuing her dreams, wanting these big, big things. And then the reality of like what life was like in small town America, where those sorts of dreams and aspirations weren't easy to get um and and i just i loved that tension that builds here i loved the theater stuff um mazzy really learns about queer community in the theater because that's something she never experienced before or thought she had never experienced before in nebraska but uh, after kind of meeting some people in new york city she realizes when she comes back to nebraska that some of her perceptions about people and the things that make them who they are weren't quite correct. And um, this industrial theater thread was totally fascinating. I'd never heard of it before. And it's where companies would like ask theaters to create plays that would spark employee enthusiasm. So like this tractor company's like, oh, if we perform these plays for our employees and their uh, families, like they'll be loyal to the company, which I guess, I don't know, seems like a weird thing to think about now, but super, super interesting to read in this book. So kind of hits on a lot of different things, but it weaves all the pieces together so seamlessly and I loved the queer threads throughout. Again, this is 1950s, small town Nebraska. Um, Wasn't exactly anticipating that in the book, but it's done beautifully. And uh, just all the little pieces worked in this book. And I am going to reference this one again with another book I'm going to talk about later. But if theater, historical theater, if sort of looking at big city life versus small town rural life, fascinates you than Mazzy by Melanie Crowder is one to pick up. That is fascinating. It it's weird. It's an interesting flip on Teatro Campesino, which is farm workers theater that um came out of the United Farm Workers and Ooh. various, you know, strikes of the the fifties and sixties. But yeah, that's so 
that's fascinating. You have like the capitalist and the anti-capitalist. Like now I want to see a YA yeah. novel about the Andrea but no. And yeah, now I, I want to like... tell a friend who's a cheese educator, like that's her job is to travel around the country and teach, you know, grocery workers how to sell yeah. her company's cheese. And now I want to tell her she should try theater. <laughs> I was just like, I'd never heard of this. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, I kind of want to know what this industrial theater is because all I'd ever thought about is like stage theater. And, and I know there's a bunch of different kinds of stage theater, but then when I it was like, this is going to be a traveling show, but it wouldn't actually be pre- performed on any stages. It's like, these are company um, focused performances. I was like, this is so fascinating. And um, it made me want to like look up a whole bunch of like what other places did these sorts of things because I believe like the tractors, um, you know, but like what other yeah like, companies did this make a play about milk <laughs> like maybe yeah, someone who studies like theater history please please clue us in fill us this. in yeah. <laughs> yeah so my first pick I. Th- it's funny when we did our episode about um, award winners and we were talking about how the Schneider only picked one mm-hmm. immediately after we hung up, I remembered the degenerates by J. Albert Mann. Mm. And I am so angry now that it didn't get a Schneider nod because it is about it takes place at the early 20th century. And it's about young women who were locked up at the Massachusetts School for the Feeble-Minded, which is, you know, what we what we kind of used as an umbrella term for lots of different, um, you know, cognitive or mental or physical differences. And it is, so there's four main girls, but there are a lot of, a lot of side characters. And I think I had vaguely known this, but not really known that, you know, words that we now, you know, kind of use interchangeably as insults and that, you know, kind of disability activists encourage us not to use. But things like moron, imbecile, idiot had like clinical diagnoses attached to them and weren't interchangeable. Like if you're a moron, you're not an idiot. And Mm. yeah, so it's this really fascinating, like, you know, abusive medical system, which you know, usually I think we think of abusive medical systems and, you know, Tuskegee comes to mind and other race-based ones. But yeah, this is essentially like a a boarding school that they're locked up at for life because then they grow up and they, you know, kind of work in the same place, you know, and you have a girl with club foot, you have, you know, even, you know, being queer was a mental illness. (laughs) So you have someone who's like totally fine, but you know, working class and queer. So, you know, obviously should not be you know, living out in the wide world with everyone. So it's this really, really fascinating story about the ways that they support each other, the ways that they kind of fight back against the the institution. But also it's realistic about like a lot of them aren't going to leave. You know, like a lot of these stories did not have happy endings. And I'm as sad as I am, you know, I'm glad that she didn't make this like magical Deus Ex Machina where all of a sudden, you know, everyone runs away and <laughs> finds happiness. <laughs> but yeah, you have these, you know, these moments of rebellion and then you have these, you know, horrible, horrible things that are happening to them. But I'm really annoyed that this didn't get a Schneider nod because I, I haven't read another book about disability like this. And it's also just a good, you know, historical fiction novel about girls doing what they can to, 
you know, fight back against circumstances. And it's honest about how lots of women never, never overcame that stuff. Um, I wrote in my Goodreads review, this is a total downer and a masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) It is a total downer. But yeah, it's really, really well done. So that's The Degenerates by J. Albert Mann. So my next pick is one I haven't read yet, but is sitting literally on my pile. And I wanted to talk about this one because it's Stacey Lee. Uh, Her book, Luck of the Titanic, comes out in May. And I can't wait to read it. I think Stacey Lee is up there with Melanie Crowder in terms of my favorite historical fiction in YA. And every single book she's done, I loved. And I suspect this one's going to be no different. And the reason I wanted to talk about one I haven't read is because I know I've talked about all of her other books (laughs) numerous times on the show. Um, So here's a little blurb of this one. It sounds so freaking good. So Southampton, 1912, 17-year-old British Chinese Valora Luck has quit her job and smuggled herself aboard the Titanic with two goals in mind, to reunite with her twin brother Jamie, her only family now that both their parents are dead, and to convince a part owner of the Ringling Brothers Circus to take twins on as acrobats. Quick-thinking Val talks her way into opulent first-class accommodations and finds Jamie with a group of fellow Chinese laborers in third class. But in the rigidly stratified world of the luxury liner, Val's ruse can last only so long, and after two long years apart, it's unclear if Jamie even wants the life Val proposes. Then, one moonless night in the North Atlantic, the unthinkable happens. The supposedly unsinkable ship is dealt a fatal blow, and Val and her companions suddenly find themselves in a race to survive. So this book has everything I love. It is the Titanic. Like, any Titanic historical is going to get my attention, but the lead is a girl of color, and she wants to get involved in the Ringling Brothers Circus, which um, I... I hate the circus, um, but (laughs) I... I lived for a very long time in a town that has a long circus history. So circus history fascinates me and all the different like manifestations of what circus history looked like. So this ties perfectly into that as well. And of course, it's Stacey Lee. So I know the writing is going to be top notch. And um, yeah, there's there's so much. I'm so looking forward to this one. And that is Luck of the Titanic by Stacey Lee. I'm obsessed with Stacey Lee. She's, yeah, I think she and Kat Winters are my two, like, if they wrote it, I will read it, people. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, she's definitely one of mine. Yeah, I am I have that on my Kindle, but I think I want to wait for, you know, the hardcover because the, oh, the cover is beautiful, too. Mm-hmm. But my next pick is Orphan Monster Spy by Matt Colleen. So this one I did as an audiobook, but I, you know, imagine it's great in print too. It's definitely horrifying, which I just realized I'm doing like two <laughs> horrifying books in a row. Um, it takes place during World War II and it starts with um, kind of immediately after a car accident and this girl, Sarah, finds her mother dead and she's Jewish. And, you know, not not a good time to be Jewish in Europe. But, you know, a man comes up and she gets really worried because she can see that, you know, he's wearing an SS uniform. And it turns out that he's actually a double agent for the British. 
So he sees her, figures out that she's Jewish, even though she's, you know, blonde and blue eyed, so she can kind of, you know, pass, so to speak. And he's like, you know, I will, I'll, I'll take you, you know, you're, you know, abandoned, basically, because everyone's dead. So he takes her home, and they come up with this identity for her so that he's, you know, an SS officer, and she's his orphaned niece. And he learns that, you know, she's fluent in a couple languages. Her mother was an actor, so she's also, you know, very talented. And he has her go to a Nazi boarding school where there's these, you know, children of high-ranking officers. And, you know, wants her to report back on things and do, you know, little acts of sabotage. So it is, oh my God, it's amazing. So she's, you know, able to like kind of get into places that he's not because people don't pay attention to little girls. And so she's, you know, she's very useful to him. And then also, you know, likes the idea of A, being safe and B, (laughs) taking down the Reich. But I just, it is fascinating so you know the orphan is her the monster is nazi children like that's what they call them as little monsters what sarah and her you know quote-unquote uncle call them and then spy you know because she's a spy but it is this fascinating like thriller and there's funny moments and it's oh it's just so great so if you like, you know, girls infiltrating places and bringing <laughs> down, you know, bringing down the powerful, I just, it is amazing. Her classmates are just terrifying little monsters. And <laughs> it's, yeah, it is a really gripping novel. There is a sequel. I didn't like it quite as much. I think I would have liked it as a movie, but I didn't enjoy reading it as much. But at least the audiobook of this first one, I think, is just. It's one of those that even if you're like an audiobook while, you know, doing laundry or driving only, you'll want to all of a sudden like just keep listening to it. So Orphan Monster Spy by Matt Killeen. My next pick is going to make some people cringe um, and not because of what it is, but for when it's set. And that is The Black Kids by Christina Hammonds Reed. And it's set in 1992. Sorry, it's historical fiction because <laughs> this one is centered about around a historical event. So I think that there are really three kind of categories that overlap in what we talk about stories that are true. So there's, you know, historical fiction, and you tend to think of things that happened a long time ago. Then there is realistic fiction, which is sort of the umbrella category of anything that could happen that is not speculative fiction if you want to put it in really simple terms and then there's contemporary fiction and contemporary is very much like in the now in this moment or a very recognizable like now moment and so when i think of a book set in 1992 i i think realistic fiction first and then depending on how the story is told like it could be pretty contemporary like you can still have a story that feels very fresh and very now even if it lacks some of the like cultural or technological signs of being right now um but then there are books like this one that center around a historical event and a historical moment that are very clearly historical fiction um it doesn't mean that these issues are not still here but it just means that like 1992 that setting is very purposeful um In this particular book, it 
follows Ashley in 1992 in L.A., who uh, she's struggling with understanding what's kind of going on in her town, in part because it doesn't touch her immediately. She is black, but she's wealthy, and she attends the school where her status isn't really called into question. And so she doesn't necessarily get seen as a black girl. Her friends are all white, and she hasn't had this experience of necessarily bonding with other black kids, even though there are other black kids in her school. As the school year progresses and the protests, the Rodney King protests, uh, grow, this is where Ashley becomes more aware of who she is spending time with and how her own voice can lead her to getting other black kids in trouble because she's not challenging the white supremacist assumptions that have been ever present in her own social circle. So when she does that, she really comes to discover how incredible developing relationships with other black kids is and starts to understand so much more about what's going on in this moment in her life and how she is situated within it. Something I I wrote um, about this book after I read it was that the marketing was not great on this one. Like it is definitely situated around the Rodney King protests and it makes a, a big part of Ashley's coming of age, but there's so much more to this than simply just saying, if you like the hate you give, you'll like this book, which definitely fans of Angie Thomas's book will like this one, but I think it distracts from the richness of how much of a coming of age story this is. And yes, the themes are similar, but they're very, very different stories, very different tones, very different storytelling methods. And I just, if you want a historical fiction, that's great. That's also a very powerful coming of age story. Like this is this stands on its own. You don't need to comp it to any other big name titles to sort of make it stand out that way. And that is The Black Kids by Christina Hammonds Reed. I've been really excited about that one. And it is it is on my stack of hardcovers. And <laughs> yeah, like so many books. My next book, I think I've talked about before, but I'm going to keep screaming about it because I think mm-hmm. it also sort of fell under the radar, which is wild because it's by Marie Lu, who is, you know, kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's definitely a quieter book. It's The Kingdom of Back. And, you know, people are used to her very exciting, you know, like futuristic or sci-fi things. I believe she used to be a video game designer. So, you know, kind of action is what she's known for. But this one, I saw it and was like, I'm obsessed with this person and nobody ever, like, you can't find history books, fiction or nonfiction about her. And that's Nanerl Mozart, who was, you know, the Mozart's sister, his older sister. So um, I grew up playing piano. I I don't play it much anymore, but sometimes, sometimes I pick it up. Um, And... Mozart's always been my favorite because you can tell that he liked math and I like math. Um, Like just if you if you know music, you can tell that he's, you know, he was like someone who was like, this is the key and this is the time signature and we're staying here and there will be no surprises and there will be no accidentals because I like this key and I like this rhythm. And that really appeals to me. Um, But I I don't think it would or should surprise people that, you know, wives and sisters and daughters of, you know, the famous musicians we've heard of were also musicians and possibly even 
the writers of some of the the pieces that we've ascribed to the men. And she was someone who, you know, was also like a child who was just a star and wildly talented. And, you know, it was just that when you have a little brother who is equally or slightly more talented, but he's younger, like that's, you know, that's a bit more of a wow factor. But they totally had this stage father who would, you know, just march them around Europe to play for nobility and royals and... You know, they were they were child stars. But this one, I guess, comes from real events that the siblings, you know, kind of in their own, like in the backseat of the carriage while they were traveling, had this ongoing like game of storytelling about this like magical world that, you know, they could both go to. And it was just their fun thing that they would do together as siblings. So in this one, that magical world like becomes real, but only for Nanarl. So it's sort of her escape from this family where her dad is like, you're great, you're amazing, you're not good enough, but you're amazing. But also, you can't be good enough, so I gotta find you a husband, you know, and there's this tension there. So she has this, like, magical place and this magical boy who, you know, is trying to, like, make her dreams come true, and it's like, is he real, is he not? And, yeah, it is just this wonderful story about like talent and upstaging and sibling relationships and parent-child relationships and music and I just oh I loved it so 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 much um and I wish more people had been talking about it last year so I think it will be very appealing to people who play music but also just to anyone like I would I would comp it to Pan's Labyrinth in that way, I think, like a girl who, you know, needs to escape because the adults in her life are like, you know, like, <laughs> I like you when I like you, but the rest of the time, like, please, you know, be seen and not heard. So, yeah, I think it's got that nice touch of of magic, but also very real historical issues. So that is The Kingdom of Back by Marie Lou. And my last pick is one I know I've talked about on the show before, but I'm going to talk about again and again and again. And that is Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe. Um, This is probably in my top three of the year so far. And it has a lot of those fascinating threads that relate to Mazzy as well. Reading these almost back to back was such a neat experience of how different teen girls experience the 1950s, depending on race, sexuality, privilege, even where they lived in the United States. So this book follows Chinese-American Lily, who finds herself falling for Kath, who is white. And this is during the 1950s in San Francisco. It's an era of change and upheaval and an era when the Red Scare still emerges to put those who are quote-unquote other into their places. It's told in a couple different timelines, and it's a family story about immigration post-Chinese exclusion, about the realities of being called a communist, and about the ways in which living up to parental and cultural expectations in a changing world means sometimes putting your true self in the dark. So the Telegraph Club itself is this lesbian nightclub. I loved this setting. I loved the way it allowed Lily and Kath to connect. And it's where they built a found family of fellow lesbians. And it's just, it was such a powerful space in the story and such a contrast to everything going out, 
going on outside the walls of this particular place. Do not, do not skip the author's note in this one when you pick it up. It's packed with so much brilliant historical context and I think added so much to the story. And that is Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe, who... Like Marie Lou, hadn't written historical fiction before, um, had done primarily science fiction and fantasy, but totally nailed this historical fiction book. And I, I hope we get to see more of it from her. It makes perfect sense. And I know she like worked on it forever and you know, mm-hmm. would talk about it on her blog, but I mean, she's such a good research person. Like, the Mm -hmm. things she has contributed to the YA community besides her books, as far as, like, detailed statistics and and research, it makes perfect sense for her to do this. Yep. So I hope it's the beginning of many. Me too. And again, I'm a person who nerds out over introductions and author's notes. They aren't always necessary. They aren't always good. But this particular one, I was like, I could have read a whole book of just her author's notes on this book. Yeah, I don't read a lot of newsletters, but hers is fantastic. So I'm not surprised that her author's note is good. My last pick came out um, about two years ago. It was um, our on our finalist list and then our winner for the Los Angeles Times book prize that I was on. And it is When the Ground is Hard by Mala Nunn. So it takes place in 1960s Swaziland, and it's a boarding school story. So I was Mm. like, well, I'll read it because I love school stories. (laughs) And it's about a girl who's, you know, used to being the the popular girl. She's in the cool girls group, and she's, you know, mixed. And her white father, who is, you know, otherwise not really involved in her life, pays these expensive school fees. And, you know, so she's like, here I am being awesome. And then this year, or this semester, she goes back to school, and there's a new girl. And she's, you know, even better than Adele. So now she's part of the cool girls group, and Adele's been sort of shoved to the side. And she's like, well, now I don't know what to do, because I've spent all this time, like, you know, being a cool girl, and I have no other friends. And she ends up paired with this girl, Lottie, who is like, you know, nobody likes Lottie. She's you know, she doesn't pray and it's a Christian school and she's, you know, always not doing what she's told. And the two girls are, you know, not not pleased to be roommates, but they kind of have no other choice. They are their their only option for friends. And they start to bond over Jane Eyre. And they start reading the book together, and that sort of empowers them to take on all the bullies and other problems at their school. And oh, like I said, I love boarding school stories. And, you know, when you add like race and class and colorism, it's just so complex without like feeling messagey. And yeah, I just, you know, I, I don't think I've ever read another book take that takes place in Swaziland so it was also just sort of eye-opening to me it reminded me a lot actually of um, Out of Shadows by Jason Wallace Mm. which takes place in you know what was Rhodesia is now Zimbabwe during like a time when you know Africans were kind of (laughs) I don't want to say taking back their country because that makes me (laughs) think of white nationalism but you know when things were were shifting back to you know, the original people who 
who lived there, but you have white people, white children who were born there, so they feel, you know, they are African as far as like where they live, but occupy a very different social space. So they're great read-alikes for that. But yeah, When the Ground is Hard is just, it has all of the elements you want from a school story and then all of the elements you want as far as like historical fiction that needs to take place during that time instead of just, I didn't want to deal with cell phones, so I made it mm -hmm. historical. So that is When the Ground is Hard by Malinen. So we'll hit our second sponsor and then dive into our second topic because it's also a really fun one. Uh, so our second sponsor is Learner Books, publisher of The Secret Life of Kitty Granger by G.D. Falkson. It's 1967, and Kitty Granger is about to accidentally become a spy. A working-class girl from London's East End who today would be recognized as on the autism spectrum, she spent 16 years hiding her peculiarities from the world. But after she survives a chance encounter with a Russian spy ring, two British secret agents offer her a job. With help from an unusual team of fellow spies, Kitty must use her wits, training, and instincts to get out alive. And she might as well save the country while she's at it. Thank you to Learner Books, publisher of The Secret Life of Kitty Granger by G.D. Falkson, which it's interesting because this book sounds like it hits both our historical fiction and our next topic. I was going to say, this is the perfect <laughs> sponsor for this week. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to um, talk about this one? Yes. Um, so I, I've been trying to broaden my genres. I, I mean, I like to think that I read pretty broadly, but especially in my adult reading, I guess I'm a little more stuck in certain areas. And now I'm a bibliologist for TBR, so I've been trying to read even more broadly. And a lot of people like cozy mysteries and mysteries mm -hmm. in general. And I was thinking, like, you know, as you're when you're a kid and then a younger teen, mysteries just it seems like such a kind of rite of passage as a reader i mean there are amazing mysteries in middle grade there are you know classics like the westing game and then you know newer things as well and yeah i was like what happened like where did all the ya ones go and first i was like we've never had any and then i realized that of course that is not true but yeah it it doesn't seem like we're getting as many and I don't think I'm the best person to define a cozy mystery. I know it's kind of murder off the page and amateur sleuths and stuff. And I think that really speaks to middle grade mysteries. So in that way, I think it kind of is aligned with, with cozy, but I was like, what do, what do we do when we're done with Nancy Drew? Like what? Mm -hmm. No, I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking like, what, what is out there? Um, I was thinking a lot when you brought this up, less of like the cozy mystery sort of angle and more of the what happened to mystery series in YA. There used to be so many. And I particularly remember when I started working in libraries that teen mystery series were like a thing. Um, you know, think Gallagher Girls, think the books by Elaine Ferguson, Carol Plamucci, and then we got series by YS Lee, Stephanie Tromley, but they have definitely sort of uh excuse the pun, gone missing here. And a lot of them <laughs> But um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um it seems like a lot of YA mystery has been 
thrillers have sort of taken over instead of the mystery. And for those who, like me, are like, what's the line between mystery and thriller? They're, they're very similar. But um, this definition from Masterclass, I think, is a really good way to differentiate. And it's most mysteries reveal a crime and then require their main characters to work backwards to figure out who committed the crime. In a thriller, the bad guy is often established early on, and the main character has to work to stop them from doing evil, which I love that definition. It's like one works backwards, one works forwards. Yeah, and that's really helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very succinct. And then you start thinking about all of the books that you know that might fall into either category, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, obviously, not going to apply to every single situation, but like easy rule of thumb. And... So then that was like, where did all the mysteries go? I think that we still have standalone mysteries that come out, but I really think thrillers have taken over in YA and the sort of like detective stories, the, you know, teen sleuths, those have sort of fallen by the wayside a little bit. I blame TV um, and I am a TV head, so I'm, I love TV, never stop TV, but I think... (laughs) You know how people kind of say we're in like the second golden age of television um, Mm -hmm. because we have these like really complex, really complex stories, really, you know, sometimes dark, but, you know, like being able to binge things and having all of these, you know, streamers that aren't beholden to FCC rules have really changed a lot about TV. And I think books have been responding to that. And that's why. A lot of things have gone very dark. I mean, even reboots. You know, you have like Sabrina the Teenage Witch versus the Chilling Adventures mm-hmm. of Sabrina. I am just, for someone who doesn't like cringe, I still love Sabrina the Teenage Witch so much that I can't bring myself to watch Chilling Adventures. <laughs> and yeah, so I think I suspect this has to do with the zeitgeist of television being very dark, and that's mm. why we're not getting. If not cozy, at least like kind of fun and formulaic in that soothing way, like not in a boring yeah. way, but in the same way that romance, you know, has like formulas and tropes and you read them and the joy is seeing how they're constructed, not that they're there. Um, and I think mysteries also have that. And yeah, you you have Nancy Drew and then everything else that the Stratemeyer Syndicate put out, like Cherry Ames, mm-hmm. Nurse and Sleuth, the Dana Girls, you know, boarding <laughs> school girls and sleuths. And yeah, like it's there's a huge gap. There is. And I know that there's also this giant gap when it comes to representation as well. Like we have so few detectives of color or like teen sleuths of color and it's like there seems to be this giant opportunity for writers right there um i found again this is when i was working in libraries i found that it was younger teens who sort of gravitated toward these series and i think part of it is kind of what you talked about and that there's familiarity in the characters particularly when it's a series like you kind of get to know who the person who's going to be solving the crime or the mystery is. And there's comfort in that. And then you get to fully immerse yourself in the like, who done it? How can I solve it? Well, I solve it before the main character does. And when there's like this giant hole, it's such an opportunity. And I really hope that we do see sort of, I don't want to say a shift away from thrillers, but I hope we see a shift toward more 
mysteries and more of these series, even if they're, you know, three, four books rather than like Nancy Drew, they went on and on. Um, because there, there are readers who like that is their bread and butter. And I'm not sure that they are uh, being, being served. served. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Those are the words like being, a, being served right now. <clears throat> yeah. And another thing, um, you know, like you mentioned, it's younger teens that are um, often into it. And it's one of those, you know, we talk a lot lately, you and I, but also just we in the general community about how YA has really skewed up, up, up since adults mm-hmm. got into it. And I think a lot of YA mysteries, one thing that's super interesting is that it's often about older teens, but really appealing to and aimed at younger teens. Mm-hmm. You know, like Nancy Drew is, you know, like 19, I think. Um, and then, Something you know, like there that. are those sort of offshoot series where she's a different age, but like Cherry Ames, nurse, like she's not 15, she's a nurse. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, she's a nurse in training, but she's still a nurse. And, yeah, I kind of like that it's, you know, it's showing you these possibilities of what you can kind of be in a few years. You know, like with middle grade, we talk about like developmentally kids read, you know, a few years. They like characters that are a few years up. And then with YA, we all kind of assume like everyone has to be 18. But yeah, like an 18 year old that a 14 year old likes is going to be very different from an 18 year old than an 18 year old likes. And I just... Mm-hmm. You know, I would have to like talk to talk to a psychologist about this, but I just I find it fascinating that a lot of YA mystery series are about older teens, but they are very like young teen oriented. Let's hit some books. I'm like looking at the time. I'm like, wow, we're almost at an hour, and both of us have some books we want to talk about. Oh snap! Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I I'll start with one that uh, I think it's out the week that the podcast hits and that's firekeeper's daughter by angeline booley and let me start by saying that the marketing for this book is so disappointing um this is not a thriller and calling it has really taken away from the fact it's a coming of age story about a native teen in sault saint marie in 2004 that is a mystery and it has a mystery element to it but that doesn't really come in to the story until about halfway through. So, book follows 18-year-old Donis, who is a biracial, unenrolled tribal member, and she was born from a scandal, uh, something that kind of plays a big part in her feeling like she can't fit into her community very well. At the beginning of the book, we get a ton of awesome details about where she lives, about Sault Ste. Marie, about um, what it's like to be an unenrolled tribal member. Uh, of the Ojibwe community, and then also to not fit in with those who are not Native. Early on, she meets this boy named Jamie, who is on her brother's hockey team, and she falls for him pretty quickly. But Jamie's kind of sketch about what he shares about himself. It doesn't add up, and then uh, she needs to know more about who this guy is because she's especially intrigued. And she quickly learns that he... um, is scouting her as a criminal investigator following the murder of her best friend. There's some stuff that leads up to this um, that brings him to this community to scout her out, but it's the murder of her best friend that really trips everything into motion. So the story is about her using her knowledge of science and Native traditions to find out what happened to her best friend, as well as what is going on with this mysterious rash of deaths that are plaguing her community. 
So it's a mystery, and I would comp it as a native Veronica Mars, which is a better marketing angle, I think, because you get that real like coming of age angle to it. Um, but don't go in thinking it's a thriller. It's a slower pace. There's no clear culprit from the beginning. And Denise isn't necessarily on board as a CI until she is pulled in due to her friend's death. And her commitment uh, is clearly from the start because she wants to get to know Jamie. And what makes this book sing, though, for me was the setting and the character development. Like, so rarely do we see communities like this one, nor do we see fiction where a character shares so much about the where's, how's, and why's of her native identity and what it means to be given this opportunity to choose to enroll or not and all the complexities that go into that. So I recommend this one, but go in not expecting a thriller, go in for something a little bit slower paced and go in really for the setting and the characters. And that is Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bully. So I want to talk about Goldie Vance. Um, so mm. this is a graphic novel series by Hope Larson and Brittany Williams. And the graphic novels, I think, are firmly middle grade, but then they started doing prose novels that have a few, you know, comic interstitials but it mostly prose and i've been thinking about it because they're pushing it as a middle grade series and i really don't think it is i think it's ya and i think it's just that we you know have gotten so used to ya being older and it's by lilian rivera which already is like well i'll read it because she wrote it Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, the first book in this kind of offshoot series is the hotel whodunit but the second book either just came out or is just about to come out this spring and it is it's being comped as nancy drew and i think of all of these it is i think stylistically and personality wise like the most the most og nancy drew so you have a girl who works and lives at a resort hotel in florida which is already like you can just imagine (laughs) yeah yeah And it takes place in this sort of, like, it feels, you know, retro, but it also feels now, and they never say what year it is. And I kind of like that, too. It has that, you know, it feels like there are broads and dames, but also probably, you know, a cell phone, even though they never (laughs) say so. And it's Florida, so you have all of these, like, retired quirky people and, you know, like, kind of old performers and things. So this one has to do with kind of, like, an aging former star. And, oh, it's funny. Goldie Vance is, you know, brown and queer and snarky, and but not, like, performatively or not even, that's not the right word, but not kind of in the way we're used to, where it, like, feels like this affectation. (laughs) She's just, she's legitimately funny. And, you know, she works as a valet at the the hospital, at the (laughs) hotel. And, yeah, it's just such a good setup for, you know, like, personality and situation-wise. And you can see how you know, you read this this first book and then she could put out five books a year and it probably wouldn't matter, you know, what order you read them. And that's, I think, a hallmark of the type of mysteries we're talking about, where it's not mm-hmm. like this, you know, trilogy arc like you see in fantasy. It's, I love these characters and I would just like to check in on another adventure, but I don't have to worry about the library not having book two and going straight to book three. So that is Goldie Vance, The Hotel Who Done It, but there are many other Goldie Vance graphic novels to explore as well. 
My next pick is Far From You by Tess Sharp. And I feel like one way for readers to separate thriller from mystery might be in Sharp's two YA novels. Far From You, which I'm going to talk about really quickly, solid teen mystery. Her latest, The Girls I've Been, is a thriller. We know exactly who the bad guys are immediately in that book. Um, And Far From You, we don't. And I'm going to link in the show notes to an episode of Extra Credit I did with author Elsie Rosen about this book because it is this really fascinating discussion of queerness and what makes for a good mystery. But the long and short of Far From You is that it follows... When Sophie's best friend has died in what many people believe is a drug deal gone wrong, but Sophie knows that's not the case. The problem is that Sophie is recovering from drug addiction herself, and so her small community has a hard time believing her, and now she has to do the investigation herself to find out what happened to Mina, as well as to clear her own name and reputation. It's this very complex and layered and compelling mystery that holds up so well even eight plus years after publication and that is far from you by tess sharp my next pick is Ilatswe by darcy little badger it's illustrated by ravina kai which i could do a whole episode talking about why we should have more illustrated <laughs> books for older people but won't get into that now so it takes place in you know sort of a now or near future america but with a little a little twist like you have you know more magic and monsters and um you it takes a lot of lipan apache um like folklore and religious origins and myths and makes those like a part of the world like just in the same way that you know kind of our world is shaped by a lot of like christian imagery and Um, stories and ethics and stuff like that even if we think we're secular we live in a world that's still very shaped by that Mm -hmm. um so i really like that setup to start with and you have a girl named elatsue who finds herself in this mystery when her cousin's ghost appears to her and is like i was just murdered and you need to figure out how this happened and you need to find my killer so um it's yeah i think it it really hits that you know mystery versus thriller thing where it's a mystery the crime has happened and she has to go and figure out what's going on and there's you know a weird town and a weird guy who if you think of like the mayor from buffy the vampire slayer you get that vibe like seems like he's been around a little too long and (laughs) no one seems to mind but everyone seems like weirdly affected by him and Oh, there's also like a a dog ghost that is her pet, which is just so cute. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really yeah, I think it like solidly fits in that this is not a thriller, it is a mystery. So even if there are scary things, it is she is solving a crime. And that is Elatsway by Darcy Little Badger, illustrated by Ravina Kai. My next pick is Undead Girl Gang by Lily Anderson. And I talked about this on the extra credit episode about Summer Scares picks because it's a horror book. Uh, But this is sort of the perfect example of how horror is a mood and not a genre because at heart, this is a mystery. So Anderson's book is this voicey, fun mystery about best friends Mina and Riley who have to make their own witchy fun in their small, closed-minded town. But when Riley, along with two of the school's mean girls 
dies under mysterious circumstances, Mila refuses to believe that it was the suicide pact, which is what everybody in the community thinks it was. Like, Riley would not be caught alive with these girls, let alone dead. Um, so no one will believe Riley when she, or no one will believe that there's something else going on until Mila sets out on the path of finding out what happened and does so with a little witchcraft. So Mila brings her best friend and the two other girls back to life from the death. Uh, but they're not especially interested in helping her solve the mystery of why they died. Uh, instead, they're attending to some unfinished business of their own. And so now Mila has to work twice as hard to wrangle the girls into helping solve the mystery of their murders while they're distracted by their own agendas. Um, I loved how much humor was in this book. And I love that Mila is this fat, proud Latina main character. Her voice is sharp and the entire story is compelling and funny and it's also a really powerful exploration of grief which you know given that it's funny and fast-paced is a little unexpected but also done so flawlessly in this book and that is undead girl gang by lily anderson my next pick is a classic it's I didn't even realize that it was as old as it was. I thought it was like, you know, when I was a kid and it actually came out before I was born, like a few years before I was born. And that is The Ruby and the Smoke by Philip Pullman. So it's hmm. the first book in the Sally Lockhart series, which is, you know, historical fiction takes place in Victorian London. And it is it's the most like masterpiece theater book that you've ever seen for teens. and. Um, you know, Masterpiece actually did two of the books um, as TV movies, and then they never did the third one, which is a crime because the third one is the best one. So now that we have his dark materials, I think, you know, someone should take on Sally Lockhart and redo all of them. So you have a 16 year old girl who, you know, is already sort of, you know, makes people uncomfortable because she's very educated, but she also knows how to shoot a gun. And. <laughs> Her father has just drowned and people, you know, are just saying like how tragic he was on a boat and he drowned and she's like, no, no, this was murder and I'm going to prove it. So it starts with her killing a man and then the rest of the book is her trying to figure this out. And I think it's interesting because it's Victorian and we tend to think of like dresses and you know, maybe a woman who's trying to be a feminist, but she's like brought down by her arranged marriage or something. And this one deals with like some of the really dark stuff like opium addiction and class and, you know, also feminism, of course. But yeah, you know, it's a 16 year old girl who is, you know, stuck living in this world that she's in, but is also unwilling to let this go. And it's the first in what was really kind of a, a trilogy. And then there was this like add-on book um, that came out later, but you can feel pretty satisfied with it um, if you just read three of them. You know, the next book has a lot to do with like steam engines and technology. And then the third one is like very, ugh, it's very dark. And looking back, it might be kind of problematic. I remember it dealing with like, Yiddish newspapers, which are their own very interesting thing, but I would have to check back and see like what exactly is going on. But certainly the Ruby in the Smoke is just this, yeah, it is a really 
masterpiece theater. Like if you love the BBC, you will love this because it is Philip Pullman before the Golden Compass, like really digging into that, you know, historical Britain. So yeah, definitely check it out. And I'm going to be talking about it in a, in an episode this summer. So I'm excited to reread it. My last pick is a series, and it's the Jacoby series by William Ritter. And let me start with the disclaimer. I haven't read it, but I know how many readers love this historical mystery series with the Sherlock vibe, and I bet it would be a great read-along, uh, read-alike for the books you just talked about. Um, I wanted to make sure to highlight it here because it is a series and it has four books. So here's a little blippity blip. Uh, newly arrived in New Fiddleham, New England, 1892 and in need of a job, Abigail Rook meets R.F. Jacoby, an investigator of the unexplained with a keen eye for the extraordinary, including the ability to see supernatural beings. Abigail has a gift for noticing ordinary but important details, which makes her perfect for the position of Jacoby's assistant. On her first day, Abigail finds herself in the midst of a thrilling case. A serial killer is on the loose. The police are convinced it's an ordinary villain, but Jacoby is certain it's a non-human creature whose existence the police, with the exception of a young, handsome detective named Charlie Kane, deny. It's Doctor Who meets Sherlock in Ritter's debut novel, which became a series, and it features a detective of the paranormal as seen through the eyes of his adventurous and intelligent assistant in a tale brimming with cheeky humor and a dose of the macabre. And that is Jacoby by William Ritter, and there are four books in the series. My last pick is also one that you know just came out and is on my TBR. I I was going to read it, but I'm just like done with ebooks right now. I can't process them, and it's <laughs> yep. I only have the ebooks, so until I get a print copy, it's not going to happen. But um, it is the start of a new series called City of Villains by Estelle Loir, and so Disney in the last like ten years has been doing a lot to sort of retcon its you know classic 2D movies. They've been redoing them or doing things like Maleficent or. Um, descendants and stuff so this one definitely fits in that vein but it sounds like one I'm gonna like a lot more than <laughs> the other ones so the publisher says um, Mary Elizabeth Hart is a high school senior by day but by night she's an intern at the Monarch City Police Department she watches with envy from behind a desk as detectives come and go trying to contain the city's growing crime rate for years, tension has simmered between the city's wealthy elite and their plans to gentrify the decaying neighborhood called The Scar, once upon a time the epicenter of all things magic. When the daughter of one of the city's most powerful businessmen goes missing, Mary Elizabeth is thrilled when the chief actually puts her on the case. But what begins as one missing person's report soon multiplies, leading her down the rabbit hole of a city in turmoil. There she finds a girl with horns, a boyfriend with secrets, and what seems to be a sea monster lurking in a poison lake. <laughs> As the mystery circles closer to home, Mary finds herself caught in the fight between those who once had magic and those who will do anything to bring it back. This dark and edgy YA series explores the reimagined origins of Maleficent, Ursula, Captain Hook, and other infamous Disney villains like you've never seen before. It sounds like Sin City meets the Once Upon a Time TV show, mm -hmm. neither of which I enjoyed, but I like all of the trappings of and all of the concepts of. So this sounds like I'm actually really going to love it, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, it sounds like fun. Yeah, like just noir, but also like, yeah, things you recognize in a new way. And 
Yeah, it sounds fantastic. So that's City of Villains by Estelle Lahr, and I'm just hoping that they will be releasing all of them quickly instead of like 18 months apart, because <laughs> I have a feeling it's going to be one that is, yeah, that I'm going to want to read all the way, like all of them at once. And that's our show for the week. Thank you for tuning in. So I would love, and I know Hannah would love this too, if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts, let us know how we're doing. But more than that, we would love to hear what book you've picked up from listening to this show. Like we love hearing like what books you've picked up. Um, Yeah, when you do that, it lets us know how we're doing, but also kind of gives us an idea of like what more to talk about. And it helps other people find us. Don't forget to visit bookriot.com for newsletters, more podcasts and all things bookish, including our insiders program. Thanks again to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible. And thanks to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink, and today, Dan Baker, who is filling in for Jen Zink. You can follow me, Kelly Jensen, on Instagram as Hey Kelly Jensen and Hannah, what about you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as SHG McLicious and on Instagram again as Bookish Girl Fit. And we'll talk to y'all again in two weeks. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.